This evening we're looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Please stand. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Their, the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. and the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that Every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Please be seated. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, these are bracing words that we read from Scripture, and yet we know they are true. They're true because they come from you. But we see them verified in the world that we see around us and in the world that we experience within us. So, Father, help us to face uh, this, this indictment honestly and with humility of heart, that we might be made ready to see Christ again in the glory of his grace. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is an odd thing that the Christians would be accused of being naive when we have passages like this that we believe. But there are some that would prefer a, a version of Christianity that was perhaps more bland and maybe something more accommodating to what we would prefer to hear as opposed to words like this. Uh, there was a theologian by the name of Richard Niebuhr. He was no friend of confessional biblical Christianity, and yet he made a very indicting statement against liberal theology when he said that liberal theology preaches a God without wrath, which brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. It is a gutless, empty version of Christianity that he was exposing in that statement. We need the truth, and we need to hear the truth, uh, that we might be able to receive the truth of the gospel. And the passage like this this evening is, is one of those passages, but it's possible, I suppose, that somebody here doesn't believe in what's being said here. And so I'd like us to consider it in this way, that, that what Paul gives is a charge in verse 9, and then he lays out the evidence. He files all the evidence in verses 10 through 18, and then he brings a verdict in verses 19 through 20. And then in the significance of this, I'd like to flip the order of those, those three words. So we'll talk about verdict, evidence, and charge with regard to the gospel. So now you know where we're going. 
So here's the charge. It's interesting as we put this in context, because if you notice in, at the very beginning of this chapter in verse 1, he says, then what advantage has the Jew? And he's saying, well, much in every way. So yes, the Jews have an advantage. And then what we saw last time in verse 9, what then, are we Jews any better off? And he says, no, not at all. So if you're a Jewish reader, you might be a little confused and say, which is it? Do we have any advantage or not? Well, it depends about what you mean. If you're speaking about the privileged place that Israel had of receiving the gifts of God, like the law, yes, absolutely. Great advantage. But with regard to a place of moral standing, is there any privileged place there for the Jew? No, absolutely not. Because what Paul has been doing since chapter 1 is showing that with regard to sin, both the Gentile and the Jew are on on equal terms. Both are under sin. No advantage when it comes to sin. It's like the pro baseball player who had every advantage. He had fame, prestige, popularity, $15 million a year contract. This is a while ago when players were made meager, meager salaries, $15 million a year. But, but when his Lamborghini was pulled over because of, of his uh, expired tags, And he says to the policeman, do you know who I am? He has no advantage, right? All those privileges, they're not going to help him. He's like anybody else with retired tags on his plate. It's equal that way. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. He says, we've already charged, we've made this charge already that all Jew and Greek are under sin. That's that's the charge he's been making in in chapters one through three. They're both, both sinful. The Gentiles, without an excuse, he looks around him and sees this beautiful world that God has made and yet doesn't give glory to God, receiving that beautiful creation. The Jew has no less of an excuse receiving the word of God as revelation and yet he does not obey it. And he says, so neither one, neither one has has any advantage. They both have to give an account before God's bar of righteousness and neither one really has no defense. They're under sin, he says. Both are under the dominion of sin is what he means. They're both in chains to sin. It is a master. It reigns. It has the dominion. That's the charge. And Paul says, well, if you don't believe me, let's look at the evidence together. And that's what he does. He presents the evidence, uh, the nature of sin, the dominion of sin. He reviews it. He's, He's kind of looking across the board at different forms of sin and the things that are true of all humanity. And he does it in, in four different sections. So verses 10 through 12, here he's quoting from Psalm 14 or Psalm 53. And he's making the case that all are under sin. He says, no one is righteous. No one knows God. No one seeks God. There's no exception. So verse 12, he says, all have turned aside, which means to say all of them have walked away from that straight path. All of them have have made a shipwreck of their faith. And all of them, he says, have become worthless like a piece of rotten fruit. What do you do with rotten fruit? You throw it away. It's gone bad. It's no good. And notice in verses 10 through 12, all the negatives, four times it says, none is righteous, no one understands, no one seeks after God, no one does good, not even one. It's not unclear what he's saying. Right? Verses 13 through 14 here, quoting Psalm 5 and 140 and 10, what he shows us here is how sin follows a path from the heart to the mouth. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
And how does sin speak? What kind of language does it use? He said, sin speaks from the grave. It does so deceitfully. It does so with bitter curses. And sin's speech then is not to be seen as a harmless kiss on the lips. These lips conceal fangs that drip with poison, waiting to strike you. That's the image he uses. This is lethal, toxic stuff. Verses 15 through 17, quoting from Proverbs 1 and Isaiah 59, he shows us sin does not stop with words. It's never content to just talk. It springs into action. It's not content to say hurtful things. It wants to do hurtful things. It does violence. That violence was there all along. And look what he says. It's paths of the sinner is lined with the carnage of ruin. There is a wretchedness all along the lines. of There's all these bodies in the wake of what it does. And they would not know the way of peace if it bit them on the leg. Notice how he says their feet are swift. It means they're looking, running to do harm, to destruction. How swift, you may ask? Well, within the second generation of humankind, a man had killed his own brother because he was jealous over his sacrifice. That's the way man is. Whenever we're threatened or confused by something, we kill it. Like a child walking down the sidewalk and sees a harmless, unwanted bug, naturally squashes it. That's what we do. But verse 18, he gets to the heart of it, quoting Psalm 36. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the root problem. And before their eyes, what he means is that the God that cannot be seen, they can't see him. He's not at the center of their thoughts. He's not at the center of their life. Far from that, man has rejected God. That's what he has shown us in chapters 1 through 3. He does not give him glory, does not fear him. Despite all that he sees, he cannot see. But this fear of God gets at the heart of things. Remember when Abraham uh, took Sarah um, into a foreign land and he, he told King Abimelech, this is just my sister, just my sister. And of course it gets discovered, not just his sister, his wife. And Abimelech says, why would you do this to me? Remember what Abraham's response was? I assume there was no fear of God in this place. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so without it, it's the beginning of the end. So here's the evidence. We've, we've, it's clear. It's devastating. And he has shown us all the evidence that both the Jew and the Gentile, Jew and the Greek, are under sin. So this is the point of the trial now. We're awaiting the verdict. What is it that our thoughts and our words and our deeds deserve? And he tells us in verses 19 through 20. Paul gives a summation here. And what he's really doing is he's summing up not just the evidence that he dislodged in the preceding verses. He's summing up everything he's been saying since chapter 1, verse 18. But the way he makes it is this way. He says, the law speaks to those under the law. He's saying the law of Moses. So those of us who are Jews, it especially speaks to us. But he says, but the evidence has a way of silencing every mouth, whether it's Jew or Greek. He says, no one in the whole world can escape this, this verdict that's coming. Everyone is indicted through what he has shown us here. And of course, the scene here is that everyone in the world stands in God's courtroom and the evidence is being cited one thing after another and not even all the evidence is brought that could be brought. The whole world has to answer to God. Every member of the human race is liable to this prosecution that comes from heaven. And what does he say? Every mouth is 
will be silenced. And of course, this is the courtroom where the defendant has nothing to say. There's no reply because there's no refuting this evidence. There's no one that can, is willing to step forward and testify for us. Who would testify for such a wicked person like this? No one can be vindicated by the law. If a Jew can't, no one can be. In other words, he's making the case in verse 20, no one is righteous by the works of the law. Look what he says. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is an incredible thing. What he's showing is how ridiculous this is that after all this evidence has been listed and given, the last thing you think you'd ever hear someone say is something like this. So if I obey the law and I do good works, I can still be saved, right? To which Paul says, are you even listening? The law does not free us. It does not justify us. It does not clear us. It condemns us. No one is declared righteous before God through their obedience to the law. No, not one. So if you're looking for the way, for the road to glory, Paul has posted a sign here and it says, no road this way. But that hasn't stopped people. Many have started down this road thinking this would bring them to God only to encounter a sign that says dead end. The law will not make us right. It makes us see our unrighteousness. The law reveals sin. It does not conquer sin. The law shows us our sinfulness, but it does absolutely nothing to cure it. With all this being said, I would ask you, how do you plead? Guilty. Guilty. All of us are born under the guilt and the power of sin. All of us are fallen, is the word that we use. All those who are children of Adam and Eve, all of us find ourselves in this fallen position before God. Somebody has put it this way, total depravity is that one Christian doctrine for which there is overwhelming empirical evidence. And there are two problems here. There's, there's a condemning power of sin and then there's a corrupting power of sin. That condemning power of sin is that guilt that you and I have inherited uh, from Adam, that is imputed sin, credited to our account. And then there's that corrupting power of sin. That's the pollution of our first parents' sin. Each and every one of us can thank our parents for that. They passed it down to us just as their parents pass it down to them. That is inherited sin. That is the emphasis in the list that he gives, is showing us the, the impact of sin and how it penetrates our whole nature. It saturates every part of us, every fiber of our spiritual being, that's our nature by birth. We are inclined to do these sorts of things. We're inclined uh, to evil, and we can't do anything about it. Lady Macbeth uses this line in Macbeth. says, all the perfumes of Arabia could not sweeten these blood-stained hands. She sees it. She can't clean herself. She can't cleanse herself from every angle and all level. It's sin that condemns us, and sin reigns over us. The London Times once sent out letters to many prominent English citizens, and they put to them this question and asked them to write back an article. And here is the question. What's wrong with England today? What's wrong with England today? One of those people was G.K. Chesterton. And he wrote back very briefly 
and said, I am. What's wrong with England today? He says, I am. That Chesterton understood who he was as a member of humanity, that we're the problem. Sin is debt, and so it condemns us. Sin is pollution, so it defiles us. Sin is bondage, and so it enslaves us. And that's what this shows, that no matter how you slice this cake at every layer, you will find sin. And you and I know it. We see it. We hear it. We read about it. We feel it. We feel our brokenness and our frailty, our emptiness, our helplessness, and our hopelessness. So to stand in right relationship with this God, what do we need? Well, there's no question. We need a miracle. We need a gift. With all this bad news, we need some good news. That's why we call it the gospel. Gospel is good news. And God does what the law could not do. God does what we cannot do. God does what good works cannot do. He does what is amazing to us. Romans 8.3, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. This is the heart of what we believe Christianity is. It's justification by faith. That is to say that God declares sinners forgiven of their sins and as righteous in his sight through his son. That those who believe in his son are those who are imputed, credited with his righteousness. There are those whose sins are forgiven. And all of this speaks of only one thing, and it's, it's God's grace. For those who believe in Jesus Christ, they receive this, this gospel answer to our need for righteousness, something we can't earn, something the law cannot give. And it answers our need for freedom to be delivered from the power of sin. This is what we have in the gospel. Christ says in John 8, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But in the same context, he says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And it has. This is this free gift of God. And like all gifts, it can only be received one way, by faith. By faith in Christ. This is our only hope, to be delivered from sin, both its condemning power and its corrupting power. And you might be sitting there saying, well, this is wonderful, but how can I believe it? When I see all my sin, I feel its power. I struggle with it every day. How can I believe that this is, this is true? And I would say it's because the evidence is so clear and overwhelming. You have a Father in heaven who loves you, loves you freely, loves you generously by sending his only begotten Son for sinners like us. And he says, if he did not spare his own son, how much more will he also give us all things along with him? As the Bible says, see what love the Father has lavished upon us that he would call us the children of God. There is this evidence of, of a father who loves you. Then there's the son who gave himself so willingly for sinners like you and me. It was says in scripture that that you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for you he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. That he endured a judgment that we deserved so that we would not be condemned. He became sin for us so that we might become 
the righteousness of God. He was cursed for us that we might be blessed and receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, all because he died in weakness but was raised in power and now sits at the right hand of God, testifying on your behalf. We look to him. We look to this life of perfect obedience that was lived for us, this death that has satisfied every death, this resurrection that has gained the victory, and this one who sits at the right hand of God in that perfect righteousness that has no blemish in it whatsoever, not one. And then there's the Holy Spirit who ministers to our hearts the grace of God and peace and joy and love, and he does so with great power, comforting us with the knowledge of of what we have in Christ, who we are in Christ. And he shapes us and makes us into what we are to become in Christ. And you see, this is just a very short summary of the gospel. And all this evidence proves that it's God who has saved us. It's God who delivers us. And it's God who loves us. And when we see this, when we see all that Christ has endured for us, what he has purchased for us, what he has saved us from and what he has saved us to, when we see this Father and what he has promised and what he has done and the Spirit and what he applies and what he is doing and what he gives, we hear what God has declared. And we should come to only one conclusion. It's a conclusion that Paul reaches in Romans 8, 33. Where he says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. If it is God who makes this declaration of justified, who dares to come and appear and prosecute the case against us? And God says, it's not me. But those whom God has chosen, these are the same ones he's called. And those that he has called are the ones he justifies. These are the ones he has adopted. These are the ones who will glorify. And the one who sits at the right hand of God, he has entered as evidence the merits of his death and his righteousness. His blood bears witness on our behalf. And he sits at the right hand of God as our advocate speaking for us answering what the great accuser of the brothers would would bring against us. Who can charge us guilty? Those whom God says are pardoned. Any who would dare to challenge God's verdict of silence. John Murray puts it this way, all charges are worthy only of contempt. So this evening I remind you what we believe, that it's God who says, "I I have removed your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. And he is not a man that he would change his mind. His words are sovereign and they're final. No matter what anyone else would say, no matter what any accuser would bring against us, when God opens, it cannot be shut. And what he shuts cannot be opened. And those whom he sets free can never be again enslaved. And those he forgives cannot be condemned. We are not under the power of sin whether it's the condemning power of sin or the corrupting power of sin, we are under the power of the grace of God. We're under the rule of Christ. And it is God who has declared us as righteous. It is Christ who has saved us. It's the Spirit who testifies to us. No one can condemn us. No one can bring any charge against us. No one. Not one. Let's pray.
Our gracious God and Father, again, we thank you for your word. It tells us the truth, even when it's hard to believe. Not just when it speaks about sin, but when it speaks of your glorious grace. Oh, Father, help us not to doubt your word. Even when we face the reality of that everyday struggle with sin. And so we thank you that you stand with us. You stand behind us. This Christ who speaks in our behalf at your right hand. And we thank you for your word that testifies to us as the Holy Spirit ministers to your children that you will never let us go. We thank you for such things and for the confidence that we have before you. And we pray all these things with thanksgiving and love in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.